Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be dissecting what has been a quite bonkers week in Westminster. We'll be looking at Theresa May's long-awaited deal with the EU and the chaos that followed its arrival. I'm delighted to be joined, as ever, by our finest political minds. Down the line from Westminster, our political editor George Parker, and in the studio, Whitehall editor James Blitz, columnist Robert Shrimsley, and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Well, it's quite hard to know where to begin. The utter chaos that has been British politics this week began when Theresa May gathered her cabinet on Wednesday for an impromptu meeting to read the final Brexit deal. And yes, that deal was pretty much as expected and has been briefed out over the last couple of weeks. The Prime Minister emerged apparently triumphant from Downing Street to say the cabinet was on board, but that turned out not quite to be true. The next morning, Dominic Raab, the Brexit Secretary, resigned, as did Esther McVeigh and countless junior ministers and aides. And now on Friday, as we're recording this, talk of a leadership challenge against Mrs May is rife. So George Parker, though it feels like a lifetime ago, let's just go back to Wednesday and what exactly happened then, because as we spoke about on the podcast last week, the deal has been coming together gradually, and finally they got a breakthrough on all the key questions that we're stopping a final text being drawn up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the deal, I think, has been close for quite a while, but I think Theresa May finally thought the time had come to actually just face the political music and present it to the Cabinet. And the deal was signed off um, by Ollie Robbins, the Europe advisor, on the Tuesday and then presented to the Cabinet on Wednesday. And ministers were given a chance to read the 585-page draft treaty overnight and then it went into the cabinet. I was a bit surprised, I must confess, that either Theresa May or Dominic Raab didn't go over to Brussels themselves to put a political seal of approval on the document. But nevertheless, it was signed off at an official level. And then it went into the cabinet and you know, the cabinet went on for five hours. Theresa May said it was an impassioned meeting, which we soon obviously discovered it was more than just impassioned. It was very feisty indeed. Two cabinet ministers resigned shortly after the meeting. And Theresa May said there was a collective agreement, but it was a grudging, sullen sort of agreement. And ever since the cabinet meeting ended, we've been dealing with the political ramifications of the treaty and the deal agreed by Mrs May and a feeling among many Tory MPs that it just stands no chance whatsoever of getting through the House of Commons. So, Robert Trimsey, what did you make of the deal? Because, as I said, the outlines of it are things that we've pulled apart for a long time now because the outlines were there. But once it's now finally landed and there, what were the highlights and lowlights for you? It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because you can know exactly what's coming and think you're not going to be surprised in any way. And yet when it lands, and this is true for all walks of life, somehow it takes on an extra solidity and it still feels more surprising than it should be. George and I were sitting next to each other in the FT office in the House of Commons on Wednesday night as this cabinet stretched on. And the longer it went on, the more apparent it was that it was not going smoothly. 
at its heart, the fundamental point is the issue of the Northern Ireland backstop. It is this fact that Britain could be stuck in a position where it's in almost permanent customs union because the backstop has been triggered to maintain a frictionless border on the island of Ireland and Northern Ireland will be subject in parts to EU law. And there's nothing very surprising in this being part of the backstop. We knew this was going to come, but when it was there in black and white, clearly some ministers felt it was that little bit more real than they previously understood it to be. Because I spoke to someone senior in the DUP, the Northern Ireland Democratic Unionist Party, on Thursday morning, and they said this backstop is even worse than we'd expected. Now, the DUP are obviously quite known for their rhetoric on these kind of issues there, but with a unionist hat on, I can see why it is quite unacceptable. And there's been some people who do say, well, hang on a minute, this is going to create a different settlement for the different constituent nations of the UK. And it is a very fetching hat, by the way. You're looking very sharp in it. I think that... um I don't know why the unionists were surprised. This seems to me pretty close to what everybody expected this backstop to be. But they can only be surprised because they thought she wouldn't sign up to it. It does at least have a review mechanism in it for ending the backstop if and when it is triggered. And a passage, that paragraph that says there has to be good faith in making these decisions. So there is a bit of an exit from it. But the point is, there can't be a unilateral exit. It can't be that Britain decides it's over. So... There was no way past that one. The EU was quite clear it couldn't surrender on this, but wouldn't surrender on this point. And so the only reason the unionists can be surprised because they thought Theresa May wouldn't dare do it. I just want to say one thing on this. I mean, I can see from a constitutional point of view why the unionists would be concerned that Northern Ireland has been treated differently to the rest of the UK. On the other hand, if you listen to business groups in Northern Ireland, they're quite happy with this agreement because basically it gives them a privileged position inside the United Kingdom in the event of the backstop ever being operated, it would mean they'd be able to trade freely both with the EU and with the rest of the UK. So in fact, if you were looking to do any inward investment in that period, you'd be better off putting your inward investments into Northern Ireland than any other part of the UK. Now, George, the thing that really set people off in Westminster when this deal landed was comments from Sabine Weyland, who is the EU's deputy chief negotiator and the person who's been doing the really technical bits with Ollie Robbins from the UK side. While the cabinet was sitting during that mammoth session, she was meeting with EU ambassadors. And these comments leaked out when she said that the bare bones customs arrangement, which is part of the backstop, will form the basis for the future relationship. So to many Brexit and the Conservative Party, Theresa has essentially jumped right over her red line and said, not just for the transition, not just for the backstop, but potentially forevermore, we're going to be in a customs union with the EU. And for those Brexiters, people like Liam Fox, that means no independent trading policy. Yeah, I think some people have said that Sabine Weyon's comments were misreported at the time. But nevertheless, I think the gist of what you just said is correct. And people have gradually come to realise that actually the Northern Ireland backstop probably is a foretaste of more to come. And if you just think about this logically, that's almost certainly the case, because let's take ourselves forward to the middle of 2020. The transition period is about to come to an end in December 2020, and the UK has to decide what to do, because we assume the future trade deal is not yet in place. Well, Britain either has a choice of extending the transition period, which would basically mean staying in the customs union, or going into the backstop that we've just been discussing, which would take the whole UK into a customs union, or eventually we'll come up with a final trade agreement where the customs union is probably the only way you can maintain a soft border in Ireland. So whichever way you cut it, the direction of travel is pretty clear. 
And the interesting thing about this deal, Robert, we're going to come on to where this deal goes next later, is that where we've landed is pretty much exactly what Jeremy Corbyn said in his conference speech back in September, that he said if a deal that protects environmental rights, that's in there, workers' rights, that's in there, a customs union, that's essentially in there as well. This is a place where Theresa May certainly didn't envisage us going, but it's much closer to where the, the Labour leadership is than most of the Conservative Party. I'm not completely sure about that. Labour has also been part of its six tests to maintain all the benefits of the single market as well. One has to remember the six tests that Labour set were I'm designed... i someone remembers the six tests. ...not to be passed. Like most tests that politicians set, they're designed to be failed. So... I don't think it is what Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party have demanded, but then what they demanded was not possible. But I do think it isn't a million miles away from the deal that anybody looking at this two years ago thought would have to be done if you were to maintain any kind of economic benefits. And if you wanted to maintain easy trade relations with the EU of the kind that business was demanding, then this isn't a million miles away from what you want. They've chosen to protect one thing from the referendum, which is to stop free movement of people and everything else they've acceded to. And I think if your starting point for negotiating this deal was we have to end free movement of people, then this deal is the closest economic and trading relationship you can do while meeting that commitment. Because if you were in the single market or anything else, that means free movement of people. Now, George, let's look to resignations because... That was Wednesday night when the deal landed on Thursday morning. Things kicked off with Dominic Raab, the Brexit secretary, who resigned. And he's obviously the second Brexit secretary following David Davis, who was also unhappy. And the tale that seems to have emerged from Downing Street was that Mr Raab was bounced into this final deal, was not kept in the loop and therefore decided he couldn't accept what was being done and decided to quit the government. Yeah, I think that's true. And um you would think that Theresa May would have learnt the lessons of the Chequers Summit, where David Davis wasn't squared as Brexit Secretary then, and of course resigned shortly afterwards. And I was speaking to one normally supportive minister today, saying that it was just baffling that Dominic Raab wasn't brought in on the final deal, wasn't fully engaged. And then it had the remarkable spectacle that Theresa May opened this five-hour marathon cabinet meeting, and the first person she turned to to speak in favour of the deal was Dominic Raab, someone who was plainly deeply opposed to the deal. So it was a strange bit of political management, to say the least. But um, as you say, Dominic Raab quit the next morning. Esther McVeigh followed. And I think at that stage, there was a feeling, hang on a sec, this could really be the big unravelling of Theresa May's government. But of course, subsequently, we discovered that those were the only two cabinet ministers that were going to quit. And I think Theresa May will have heaved quite a big sigh of relief that uh, it was just Dominic Raab and Esther McVeigh that walked. It's quite interesting, Robert, about Mr. Rob because he was very clear about needing a unilateral exit from the backstop. That was something he'd said very publicly. And I think most people in the Conservative Party thought that he would probably find some way to resile from that commitment. And yet he doesn't actually seem to have done that. He's stuck to his principles on this. And he now seems to think in subsequent interviews that we need to go down the negotiated no deal route, that he thinks the deal on offer is very much going to be the only deal and there's no way of trying to unpick that. But he does have quite a lot of support within the Conservative Party. A lot of Brexiters look to him as their conscience in a way. And if he's saying this is unacceptable, then that obviously has wider ramifications. Yes. I mean, I think he set himself a red line and decided to stick to it. He chose the red line of the Northern Ireland dimension. How much support he has in the Conservative Party is probably about to be tested. It's quite interesting to look at Theresa May's position, there are two possible explanations for the way she's chosen to do this. The first is to say, 
actually, if you look at her premiership, she has shown a staggering ineptitude in people management. She manages to alienate people and make enemies when she doesn't need to. She is dismissive of people's concerns when a bit of extra care might have made a difference. She tends to try to bounce people and blindside them as an effort to drive things through her way. The other possibility is that she is looking at this with a something approaching a scorched earth policy, which just says, I am going to get this done and it may very well be up for me afterwards. This is what I've got to do. I am going to take this through and I'll be remembered if, as the prime minister who actually made something out of this mess. So I'm just going to keep buggering on until I get it done. I think there's quite a lot of logic to that second point because she absolutely is dead set against a no-deal exit, as are many other people in the Cabinet. And during that marathon meeting, ministers from the Home Office, from the Department of Health, made very clear the consequences if we don't back this deal and we go down a no-Brexit deal route. And Theresa May, whatever you say about her, we've seen once again an example of her resilience, her stamina, but I think also her sense of public duty, that you may criticise her for being a bad people manager, but she clearly does what she thinks is the right thing for the country, and that's she thinks that this deal is that. Yes, although I think you can also criticise her for not being incredibly strategic about this earlier on and not actually stopping and thinking where she wanted to end up and how she was going to get there. But yes, she's clearly now decided this is the deal. Although I do remember an analogy that was once made about John Major and Maastricht in which I think Michael Portillo likened him to the the colonel played by Alec Guinness in Bridge on the River Kwai. So the problem was they spent so long building the bridge he forgot he'd built it for the enemy. And so I think there is a extent to which you become captured by your own policy achievements. The more remarkable thing, George, has actually been who hasn't resigned this week because you mentioned Esther McVeigh, the work and pension secretary, who was very vocal and angry in the cabinet meeting on Wednesday, which is she went. But Penny Mordaunt, who is the international development secretary, she stayed. And crucially, Michael Gove has stayed. On Friday morning, there was a lot of speculation that Mr Gove had been offered the role of Brexit secretary. And he said he would only take that role if he could renegotiate the deal. But then oddly, he's now staying in the cabinet as Environment Secretary to try and fix the deal. So it's a very odd situation. But if Mr Gove had gone, then I think it certainly would have added to the domino theory that more and more people would leave and that the time might be up for the Prime Minister. Yeah, I think that's true. I think Theresa May was fully braced for Michael Gove to resign from the Cabinet on Friday morning and maybe to take a load of other ministers with him. And uh, the fact he didn't, I think, is, as you say, very interesting. I mean, Michael Gove was definitely offered the job of Brexit Secretary. He turned it down because he didn't agree with the government's policy on Brexit. And now he's decided to stay in the government. And there are various theories about that. But one thing for sure is that many of the Eurosceptics who are planning a coup against Theresa May are furious that he's done so. They think that he, like some of the other ministers, Chris Grayling, Liam Fox, Andrea Ledson, Penny Mordaunt, more interested in their ministerial jobs than doing the right thing by Brexit as far as they're concerned. And yeah, I think there's a lot of anger about that. Some people think that maybe Michael Gove woke up and thought, could he really be seen to be assassinating or taking part in the assassination of another high profile political figure? You remember that Michael Gove was a very close friend of David Cameron and then decided to campaign for a leave vote in 2016, famously assassinating Boris Johnson and his leadership campaign back in 2016 as well. So he probably just thought he has such a reputation for being a wrecker and a sort of nihilistic figure in the heart of British politics that maybe he thought he'd better just stay. I suppose the other thing you could justify it from Michael Gove's point of view is that by staying in the cabinet with a number of like-minded ministers, they now at least have the power held in reserve to do a second wave of resignations later on if they fail to influence Theresa May's Brexit policy in a favourable direction. But um, I think probably the prevailing view on the Eurosceptic side of the Tory party at the moment is that they've 
been treacherous to the Brexit cause. I have to say that if Theresa May is able to drive this deal through, and that I recognise is a very substantial if, that there will be a special place in Brexit to hell reserved for Michael Gove. He, he is the man who essentially stopped Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister. But for what he did, Boris would probably have been Prime Minister straight after the referendum. Having done that, he effectively creates circumstances in which Mrs May, who's seen as a Remainer, became Prime Minister. If he now facilitates her continuance in office to the point that she can take this deal through, his name will be cursed at annual gatherings, at annual ERG dinners for the rest of his life. And finally, George, one thing we have learnt on Friday afternoon is that the Brexiters who are still in the Cabinet, that's Chris Grayling, the Transport Secretary, Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary, Andrea Leadsom, Leader of the House of Commons, Mr Gove and Penny Mordaunt as well, are now gathering in a new group over the next week to try and rewrite or fix this deal, which strikes me as completely for the birds because everything we've heard from Brussels this week from Michel Barney from the EU heads is that the withdrawal agreement is now done. It's closed. The political declaration is a lot more to come on that. But in terms of the withdrawal terms, that's not changing. And Theresa May made that very clear in a press conference this week where she was desperately trying to find your good self there. And she said in that press conference, if there's going to be any deal, it has to have a backstop. And that seems to be the thing that's really riding them up at the moment. So I don't really know what they're trying to achieve with this idea of trying to unpick the deal. Well, no, we've heard a bit about that on Friday afternoon, that they are planning this sort of uh, revamp of the uh, the so-called pizza club of Eurosceptic ministers to try to influence the shape of the final treaty. But I'm told that um, before they all decided to stay in the cabinet, there'd been very little in the way of coordination. So in that respect, you just wonder whether they're just trying to put a bit of window dressing on the fact they've decided to stay. But I agree with your central premise, which is that the withdrawal treaty is done and dusted as far as Brussels is concerned. Angela Merkel in Berlin has made that absolutely clear. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe there's a possibility for a bit of tweaking around the edges. The European Union is sometimes quite good at that just to get deals over the line. But in terms of the fundamentals of the withdrawal agreement, that's about as good as it's going to get, as Theresa May has said. There's still some political window dressing they can achieve by coming up with a bit more of a solid looking political declaration on the future relationship. But bear in mind, of course, that's not legally binding. But I think, you know, the action in Brussels is almost over and really the negotiations now are back here at Westminster. You're listening to FT Politics, the podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. So that's what happened this week. What happens in the future? All eyes on Westminster are on a curious man, Sir Graham Brady. He's the chair of the 1922 committee. That's the Conservative Party's trade union. He's the man who holds the letters. These are the no confidence letters in the Prime Minister that have been flowing in over the past couple of days. The public count at the time of recording is about 20 to trigger a confidence vote in the Prime Minister. That requires 48 letters. So James Blitz, the other thing that happened this week was Jacob Rees-Mogg. He came out and said that he previously had criticised the Prime Minister's Brexit position, but felt the position and the policy were now so intertwined that she had to go. In a big flurry of media display, he wrote his letter on paper, not parchment, and then came out outside of Parliament to the world's media to announce he was handing this in. And it looked an awful lot to me like the beginning of a leadership coup. But at this time on Friday afternoon, that coup seems to have stalled somewhat. It has stalled and it's difficult to make predictions at a time like this. But if I have to, I would say that this entire backbench rebellion against Mrs May is going to stall and completely fizzle out. As you've said, to trigger a contest, you need 48 letters. 
once that starts, there is a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister and 158 Conservative MPs out of 315 have to vote for her to leave office. I don't think they're going to get anywhere near that 158. They're not going to do so, one, because even in the current circumstances, the mainstream parts of the Conservative Party will come behind Mrs May pretty strongly. But also, to work, this needed to have the Brexiters in the Cabinet walking out, Michael Gove, Andrea Leadsom and others, and it simply hasn't happened. Mr Gove's decision is important. And so I would be very surprised indeed if there is a challenge, and if it, that challenge then goes on to topple Mrs May in a vote of no confidence, my central assumption is she will go to the summit on November the 25th and she will go on to the big moment, which is the vote on the deal on, on Monday, December the 10th. And we'll come to that parliamentary fun in a minute. But Miranda Gray, it just strikes me two things this week. Number one, Theresa May's biggest advantage is her enemies in this sense, that there is no obvious alternative Brexit plan and there is no no obvious alternative candidate. So she is Tina in this situation. And if there was anything else, I think she would be in trouble. But the fact is, she's still the only person standing, as we were talking about earlier. Her resilience has been quite remarkable to watch this week. And the fact that her enemies can't even get these 48 names has become somewhat farcical, I think. It has become farcical. I completely agree. And I think the new rules for getting rid of a Conservative leader and choosing the next one in a sequence that could go on some time, as James has explained, really helps her. Because, you know, in the past, you could muster a stalking horse, make a challenge, the thing takes on a momentum of its own, the real challenger then emerges, Bob's your uncle. This process they've got to go through to challenge her first and then find a candidate as an alternative makes it look as if it's not worth challenging her in the first place and potentially reinforcing her in position for a year, which is what would happen if their challenge failed. I also think there's a sense once again, of the arch-Brexiters overplaying their hand a bit. Even that moment when Rees Mogg stood up and challenged the Prime Minister in quite a confrontational way as to why he should not send in his letter to the chairman of the 1922 committee asking for her to be removed. Immediately, a more senior backbencher, Edward Lee, got up and sort of implied a rebuke that it was not the way to treat the sitting Prime Minister. So I think that's also a reason why it might fizzle out. You know, the Prime Minister still has the benefits of incumbency and there's a sort of inertia that comes with that. It's not that her situation isn't very dangerous, though. It is because the deal that she's got on the table has so few friends on either side. And when you really look at what might happen when it comes to the House... Her support is sometimes coming from surprising areas. Some notable Brexit columnists have come out saying we must support this deal. It's the best thing on offer. But she's also got fundamentally a lot of Brexiters and a lot of Remainers vowed to vote the deal down. And it's really hard to see how she overcomes that at this point. It does strike me the Conservative Party, and James, you've followed the Conservative Party in its politics for many years, had a reputation as being totally ruthless in getting rid of its leaders, particularly when they lost elections. So Michael Howard, Ian Duncan Smith, the John Major years, all throughout history, the Conservative Party is very happy to get rid of its leaders. The opposite seems to be happening now. And I don't know if that's the changing nature of the party or the times that we live in. But in fact, Labour seems to be more eager to try and challenge its leaders than the Tories do. 
Yes. I think as Miranda has said, I mean, the problem that the Conservatives have now who want to remove Mrs May is there just isn't the time, number one. This is Article 50. Article 50. There are only four months before we leave the European Union, number one. Number two, as you have said, there is no consensus around a replacement candidate. You and I and Miranda could name at least seven, eight people that would stand in that election. Three... I covered the last full-scale Conservative leadership election that happened in 2005 when it went to the country between David Davis and David Cameron. It lasted three months. The idea that the British people will spend the next few months as we move towards the Article 50 cliff edge while a few thousand Conservative activists decide which of two people are going to be Prime Minister without any serious idea of how they're going to resolve the Brexit conundrum is just absurd. It would destroy the Conservative Party. It's not going to happen. That's the problem they have. It's the timing now of all this that makes it impossible for them to move, which is why I think she's here to put her deal to the Commons. Now, we love theoreticals on this podcast, Miranda. So let's just say James is proven wrong by events and they get the 48 names. They have that confidence vote. And I think there is this magic number that if they hit a number of enough MPs voting against Mrs May, her position becomes untenable. Now, she said she will fight on even if she wins just by one vote. But she really does have to say that. But if you just said, say, 120 Conservative MPs voted against her, you could imagine in that situation cabinet ministers would say to her, Prime Minister, you've done very well, you've got a lot of support, but in fact, there's just not the support for you there. But also in the Conservative Party and in the wider country, we've seen polls over the past couple of days that show there's not a huge amount of support for the deal and support for Mrs May is waning. And in that situation, I guess you would have to think about pausing or extending Article 50 because the time isn't there for full leadership challenge. No, the time isn't there. I think part of it is going to depend on whether... It's true what Jacob Rees-Mogg has been saying this week, which is that, in fact, the deal and the person promoting the deal, Mrs May, are kind of becoming so indivisible that you have to get rid of the whole lot together or not at all. Because there are clearly moves around that you've been discussing to try and adjust the deal to make it more acceptable. Is there a way in which Downing Street can actually live with that? They've been very confrontational all throughout this process. If you look back to how they handled the Chequers Summit, where this deal was sort of put to the cabinet, they're a bit too fond, the people around Mrs May, of forcing a solution on people without much consultation. They are now going to be forced by their own party and members of their own cabinet to actually be open to some adjustments. I think if she can show a bit of flexibility, she might actually survive and that will help her. And that even if then a confidence vote was narrow, if she pulled through, then it would give her a bit more momentum. I think there was a Labour backbencher who said yesterday, you know, it's the tree that bends in the wind or snaps. There's quite a lot to that in this situation, I think. Now, let's come on to your favourite topic, James, which is the deal and how Mrs May might try and get this through Parliament. So if she survives any leadership vote or if there is no leadership vote, then we know there's going to be a special summit of EU leaders on Sunday, the 25th of November to rubber stamp the deal. And we can't imagine there'll be huge changes to what we've seen, as Miranda said. They may be able to tweak and adjust bits and bobs around it. But essentially, the deal is then done. After that, it's then lining it up for the House of Commons. Tell us what happens next. Well, there's lots of talk about whether there's going to be amendments before the substantive yes-no motion. 
But everybody I've spoken to about this after a while leaves me thinking this is a bit of a red herring. In the end, there's going to be a substantive vote one way or the other. Yes, no, accept the deal, reject the deal. If it's accepted, then we very quickly, I think, will move towards leaving. I think the momentum will be so great to move on that I think the whole thing will just move towards March 29th. If she loses, it's obviously a big moment. The date is December the 10th for the vote. There's a lot of talk in Westminster about the possibility of going back to the European Union and going for some sorts of adjustments on the political direction. Note, the vote is on Monday, December the 10th. The European Council is actually the following Thursday. So there's an opportunity for Mrs May perhaps to go and do some kind of theatrics around perhaps getting another, uh, some changes and then coming back for a second and final attempt in January. So that's a possibility. If that fails either on the first time or the second, and we move into a new situation, there are only one of three options. Either one, there's an attempt for a complete renegotiation along the lines of Norway for now, the idea of staying in the EEA as a kind of safe harbour, or alternatively having a complete Canada-style approach. But it's very difficult. There isn't a consensus in Parliament for that, and I do not think the European Union is open to a complete reworking. Second possibility is no deal. That is a possibility. I think it becomes a possibility if we, say, move to a general election, which would be indecisive, or if there's a leadership contest in the Tory party, or if there's just total stasis. However, one of the big things that's happened in the last few weeks is that no deal is really being very seriously rubbished as an idea from within the cabinet. That's quite important. And then the third possibility is the second referendum. And I think the chances of that are growing quite considerably. There are lots of technical problems, but I think if she did get voted down, perhaps the first, certainly the second time, I think the prospects of putting the May deal to the British people against a decision to remain, those two choices on the ballot, becomes a real possibility. So let's just look at Mrs May's deal and whether she can get that through, Miranda. The arithmetic looks very tricky. The Guardian have got a nice web app where you can play parliamentary numbers and put in various concoctions. And it's very difficult to see how it's going to happen. And the key thing the Chief Whip told the Cabinet this week was that the DUP would abstain on this deal, not vote against it. Whether that happens now, given what's happened in terms of the actual contents of the deal, I don't really know. But it would require the DUP to abstain or vote for it. And then you're looking at picking off some Labour MPs from the Midlands and Northern seats who want to avoid chaos, plus limiting the numbers of Tory Eurosceptics and also the number of Conservative Remainers. And what we've heard from them has been quite interesting because Joe Johnson, the former Transport Minister, he resigned last week to essentially he won't vote for the deal. But then other people like Nicky Morgan and Stephen Hammond, for example, seem to have said that they actually would vote for the deal. So there's a very narrow way how you see could get it through, but it's by no means assured that she will. No, indeed. You've described the sort of split, some of which are quite interesting. I think the idea that they will peel off enough Labour MPs to support it is quickly looking quite fantastical, not least because so many of them are publicly coming out <laughs> to, to sound implacably opposed. How can you rewind that position within weeks? You know, that's very tricky indeed. Those sort of isolated figures like Nikki Morgan, a staunch Remainer who've said she'll back Mrs May's deal in the interests of stability and preventing no deal, those are sort of quite lonely voices. 
I think it's really, really tricky for her to get it through. I'm very intrigued by James's idea of the second attempt to get it through. There's a lot of chat about this kind of potential parallel with what happened in the US in 2008 to get the TARP bank rescue package through. They had to go back and have a second vote once people had really stared market turmoil in the face. And I think they are relying too much on the idea that when it comes to it, people will be frightened into supporting the deal because it doesn't look like that at the moment. I wonder about this EEA option. It's been sort of in the ether for a long time. I know you've been discussing with our colleagues this pizza pact, Andrea Ledsom's new little group sitting around discussing how they could find ways to make the deal more acceptable to their benches. Going for the EEA option... Obviously, the timetable is very pushed, as James has described, but that is actually something you could get through the Commons. You could get a lot of support on the Labour benches for that and you could peel a lot of people off. So I wonder if it's not slightly more fluid than we think it is. The question for that, James, is whether you can break open the party structures, which has happened in the past. It happened when we joined the European communities back in the early 70s, when a run from the Labour Party started with the Conservatives to pass the initial legislation to join Europe because it wouldn't have got through had it been for the Conservative benches. But my sense of the mood of Parliament now is there's so much distrust between the Labour and Conservative parties. You know, they are very much diametrically opposed at the moment. For them to fall the other way would be a big ask to get people in Jeremy Corbyn's party voting with the Conservatives. And we've seen Momentum have launched a big campaign this week to vote down the deal. And they've got this polling that says 92% of Momentum members who have obviously played a big role in Labour constituencies now want the deal voted down. So Labour MPs are going to be under a terrific amount of pressure to vote down the deal, while their consciences will also be to try and avoid chaos. Yes, that is right. I mean, I think if one looks at, and it's a difficult thing, the question of what is going to happen once the deal is voted down, okay, if we game it through, the first thing that will happen is that Labour will, as Corbyn has said, go for a vote of no confidence in the government. They will probably lose it because Conservative MPs plus the DUP will not vote to move straight to a general election. You need so a two-thirds supermajority for that. You need that. a two-thirds supermajority, but you need 51% for a vote of no confidence, which then moves you into a two-week period where you try to form a new administration. But that's not going to happen, I think. So the question then is, what is Labour's choice when it gets to that next stage? Does it go for a second referendum, which Keir Starmer has said is on the table? Does it potentially go for the EEA as a safe harbour? That could be its choice. And that is where I, I entertain the possibility of what Miranda is saying. So I think actually a lot of the balls are in Labour's court when May has actually lost. A lot of the momentum is with Labour and the choice it makes and the order in which things come up for vote immediately after that is a really interesting question. I absolutely agree with that. I think for quite obvious reasons this week, the sheer drama of the unravelling of the ministerial ranks of the May government has kept all our attention on the Conservative Party. But actually, for a long time in this whole Brexit process, it has been very significant which way Labour would decide to jump and it becomes even more significant as we go forward. I think those who have somehow got their faith in the idea that they will eventually become necessary for Labour to call for a second referendum and that the leadership will then back remain are still letting their hopes govern their rational assessment of what the Labour leadership are likely to do, however. 
And I think it's two final thoughts, James, before we finish off for this week. We could keep going for a lot longer. First of all, the second referendum, I cannot see any Conservative Prime Minister passing the legislation for a second referendum because it would tear the party apart. So from my perspective, if you're going to get a second referendum, it would have to follow a change in government. So you would have to be Labour campaigning on a second referendum after, say, general election because I think it would just be so cataclysmic for the party which tore itself apart last time and would do that again. The second final thought I wanted to put forward is I think you will begin to hear more Conservatives if the deal fails on that first attempt talking about what people call a negotiated no deal exit you heard this phrase from dominic raab this week which is essentially saying to the eu negotiators okay thank you for this deal this is unacceptable parliament's voted it down therefore we want to do a lot of little deals to keep the basics going and we will move to basic wto trading terms and that would be essentially still paying the divorce bill to settle our commitments but not having a trading relationship better than cuba or venezuela Well, those are two really interesting observations. On the first one, no Conservative government. I've often asked myself the question, what is Theresa May going to do when she loses the vote, either the first or the second time? Does she simply resign and walk away and plunge it into a full-blown crisis? What are her options? I have always felt that however much she rejects the idea of going back to the British people, she did this week talk about no Brexit as one of three options for the very first time, both outside number 10 and also in the House of Commons the next day. And I still think that if Parliament has voted down her deal twice, the logical response for a Prime Minister is to take the deal to the British people. It is not something that is entertained, but we would have gone through a great deal of trouble by that point. Nobody's seriously entertaining it. There's the odd column that's written about that prospect. But anyway, that's beside the point. If she doesn't do that, the question would then be whether Parliament itself would go for that. And then on the second point, no deal with a whole bunch of mini-deals. Yes, Dominic Raab has put that forward, but I still think it is quite striking that you are hearing more and more cabinet ministers talking in a really negative way about no deal. Liam Fox today said... A deal is better than no deal. Matt Hancock told Cabinet, I cannot guarantee people won't die if there is no deal. Gove himself, in the reporting about his decision-making, is reported to be saying, look, no deal is unacceptable. That's why I've got to stay in Cabinet to fight. So... I still don't see that as the way out. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to George, James, Robert and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to see more of the FT journalism on Brexit and beyond, then do take a look at our latest subscription offer, which you can find at ft.com forward slash 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.